Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I just want to tell you how excited I am for this fall. Now, I know that it's challenging personally and as a leader, your family, your team, our country's divided. I get it, all of that. But those are the reasons that we have scheduled the Healthy Leaders Summit. We cannot wait for this. It's October 5th through 8th. We have some incredible speakers lined up for this time. We're going to talk about health, your own personal health, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, mentally, even the health of your team. How do we pursue justice during this time that is so divided? And we believe this is going to be an incredible experience. It's not just an online conference. It's an online experience. We have some amazing thought leaders, including Jimmy Miato from Compassion International, Mark Batterson, Sam Collier, Rashawn Copeland, Jenny Katrin, Pete Scazzaro, Katie Cole, Dahadi Lewis, Rich Viotas, John Tyson, Pete Vargas, Jesse Cole, many, many others. Guys, it's not just about the speakers. This is incredible content, but I believe this will be an experience that you will not forget. We'll have moments of spiritual formation, moments of prayer together, moments of deep encouragement that we desperately need right now. And here's what's cool. It's a pay-what-you-can event. So for just five bucks, you can get into this thing. You can attend by yourself at home. You can attend with your team. You can have discussions. You can have watch parties with this. We want to encourage the heart of kingdom leaders, and we believe the best opportunity you have for that is the Healthy Leaders Summit. We want to help you get healthy and stay healthy this fall. Now, on to our podcast. Well, I'm really excited for this conversation. I actually get to bring you a teammate of mine and a close friend, Melinda Joy Mingo, um, just a wealth of knowledge and information. And uh, she has just published uh, this beautiful little book, The Colors of Culture, The Beauty of Diverse Friendships. And we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, First of all, congratulations on your new book. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here as a friend, as a team person here with Stateford, and also for the book. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, we want to get this out to the world. If if you're watching, if you're listening, um, I highly encourage you to pick up this book, The Colors of Culture. I love it. We're going to talk through it today. Um, she also does diversity and inclusion training and coaching from Stay Forth. This is something we're deeply passionate about at Stay Forth. And this is something that obviously we have a major issue. We deal with the health of leaders. We are not healthy in our view of equity, of inclusion. What's a biblical worldview below this? Uh, and currently, we're actually leading a cohort on this as well. And we're going to continue to be a resource. So we know many of you are confused on next steps. And I just want to encourage you uh, that MJ comes from a place of understanding and and of love and of bringing the church together as a bridge. This is a safe place, whether it's a cohort, whether it's a conversation with her, whether you bring her in with your team, it's a safe place to process these things. And I just appreciate your posture. You want the body of Christ to come together, to be united. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. That's exactly what I hear from the book. So we're so excited uh, to continue to launch you into the spaces uh, that you're so valuable in. Uh, but start with your story. So a little girl, you're peeking around the curtains. You're seeing things out in the streets of South Chicago. Take us back there. What was that like and how did that shape you? Yes. So I grew up in inner city Chicago and, and especially a project, a community project called Cabrini Green. It's, it's pretty famous for JJ and Good Times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so growing up um, in a situation where we were pretty much written off as a community. And what I mean is 
you know, kind of the same words that people ascribe to folks. Um, you'll never amount to anything. You're all losers. You're on welfare. You're eating government cheese. You're mm-hmm. food stamps. And so it was just, you know, I for me as a little girl, I never felt that I was going to make it as society, as a Black woman, as a person who grew up in such extreme poverty that um, I never had my own room. I mean, as a girl, until I was 13, I slept in a room, one room inside an apartment with an older couple that raised me. I had my little corner. So I never knew what it meant to have my own bedroom. I never, I can't remember hardly any Christmases or anything that we did. And so for me, I would look out of my window every day and I would see people who had amazing hearts, good people, but they just somehow didn't understand their value and worth because they allowed external situations. Mm -hmm. They allowed labels that people put on them. They accepted those labels and they almost became what people expected them to become. And for me, I just had this inner drive. I was like, I know I meant to not just be someone great, but to help other people understand their value and worth. And so, I don't know, I just think from the beginning, even as a little girl, when I had so much disillusions about life, and even when Martin Luther King died, I was a little girl, I remember that I was terrified when I found out he was assassinated and I fell on my knees and I asked God to make me a white woman. Yeah, and I was like, God, please, I won't tell anybody. This is between. But I said, I'm not going to make it as a black woman. Wow. And so much of your life mission is value, worth, and dignity. Showing people that they have that, that that's given to them by God. So how did those moments as a little girl shape what you're doing essentially with your whole life mission right now? Yeah, you know, it. it's interesting. I was not a believer and I didn't grow up in a church. But I just think those moments of a little girl, they really birthed empathy in me for other people and a compassion to to really help people um, see that God has something so great for them. Their identity is not rooted in where they grew up, what they have, any of that. So my experiences of, of not being valued, I was so devalued growing up. I was bullied um, a lot by the same people who had little or nothing as I did. Bullied, I was made fun of. I mean, I was uh, beat up so badly that I had to have police escorts for mm-hmm. school. And and with all of that, you know, something stirred in me. Why? Why? What is the problem? And why is it that we can't see each other through the eyes of value and worth? Mm-hmm. What is it that causes us to have this skewed vision of each other? And so along the way, as I, you know, God began to, get my heart and saturate my heart, I just come to the realization that you have to see yourself first as mm-hmm. a person of value and worth. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I began to do that. I began to say, hey, it doesn't matter. I know I'm going to secondhand stores. I've never seen a picture of my father. I grew up in a, a, a family where my, where my father was killed when I was born. Mm-hmm. So I had all that dysfunction. But the Lord just really, you know, as a little girl, began to start shaping things, bringing people in, like you bringing really kind people into my life who did not look like me, but um, help to affirm God's identity of who I am. Mm. Well, I love that. And you live it out so well. You've got this word uh, that is from African culture that you share about a lot. I mean, almost every time we're together, you're going to bring it up. It's a thread throughout this book called Ubuntu. Can you explain what that is and why that shapes so much of who you are and the mission you, you live out? 
Yes, so Ubuntu is an African term. It, orig it originated in South Africa, uh, Tutu, and the term itself means that I am because we are. And it frames itself around community. What is community? How do we build community with each other? And that friendships and building relationships is so underrated. It's underrated. We look at causes, we, we try to come up with solutions for so many things. Mm -hmm. And Ubuntu says, when we see each other as human beings, when we see each other's, each other's, each other rather, as just people on the journey together, then now your pain becomes my pain. I might not understand it, but I can have empathy to lean into it. I might not even understand why you do a thing a certain way, but Ubuntu says, I can't fully be who I am and I see your suffering. If I have, then how do I help you have? Wow. Yeah. How much of that we need today? Of listening and empathy and truly entering other people's stories. And I wonder how many issues, uh, not fully, but begin to take care of themselves. When we can come together in the same room, we can listen. Uh, food is a big one. We both love food. There's something that happens yeah. when we come together over food as well. And I think it's that, that we realize our shared humanity. Uh, listening. You talk about listening a lot. You talk about a lot here in the book. What's the role of us listening to one another and then listening to God if we're going to see any kind of healing take place? Yes. So listening to each other says, first of all, I value what you're saying enough to listen and not just to listen with my ears, but to listen with my heart, to listen with my being, to listen with empathetic understanding, to listen with the heart of a learner. Mm. And even when we talk about culture and we look at so many things going on in our society today, I just wholeheartedly believe that as a believer, as a Christian, that I want to listen to my brothers and sisters. I want to listen to my white brothers and sisters. I want to listen to people from different countries. And the heart of God is that we listen, not with the intent to correct, not with the intent to give our solutions, but listening with the heart of empathy. Because mm. otherwise it's not listening, right? right? It's fixing. Mm -hmm. It's trying to come in and, and bring solutions. True listening. I don't want to miss that. True listening. We are not coming to fix we're not coming with solutions. We're truly coming to understand. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's cultural humility. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's valuing someone else's lived experiences, not validating them. I don't have to validate what someone has done or is presently doing because my values and beliefs um, as a Christian is always going to be how I shape and form how I do life. But at least to come and say, come and sit with someone and say, hey, help me understand that. Help me understand why you feel this way. Mm -hmm. How can I enter your world? What can I do? Why is it you don't like it when I say that word? Why does that word just so trigger something in you? Help me understand that. Mm -hmm. That's such a great phrase. Help me understand if we truly want to grow in that. You have uh, this quote on page five, which I absolutely love. Whether in our neighborhoods, churches, workplaces, or other spheres, Community is built when we intentionally choose to come out of our comfort zones and connect with others without feeling like we are walking on eggshells. We feel like we're walking on eggshells in so many conversations right now. So shed a little light on that. How do we have these awkward and honest conversations that are hard, that are not really culturally appropriate to a lot of other people, or maybe we've never had them for so much fear. How do we have those conversations and listen 
without walking on eggshells? Yes, so I think that the first thing is to be ready to have the conversation and to be ready to listen. And then to have courageous conversations. One thing I learned is that as I sit with people all the time and want to learn about them, who they are, I, I just kind of think of this, Alan. Sometimes we position ourselves above a culture unknowingly, mm. unknowingly not trying to because we have assumed familiarity. So assumed familiarity is um, I sit with someone, I sit with Alan, we're friends, we're on a team together and kind of knowing a little bit about you. So then I meet someone who has similar dynamics or similar personality, but they're not you. And so I don't tie what I do with you, who mm -hmm. you are with another person. So coming together and not walking on eggshells just means, hey, I'm gonna be okay leaning into this difficult mm -hmm. conversation. I'm going to be okay learning something that might not feel good for me to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it also is the fact that Jesus has called us to reach a hurting world. And we can't reach a hurting world if we're not willing to listen to the hurt. Mm -hmm. If we're not really, you know, willing to say, help me just understand. So walking on eggshells, I think it's this. I had a friend, I have a friend who said to me, MJ, I, I totally feel like as a white person now that I don't know what to do. I'm not the person who did anything 200 years ago. I'm, I didn't perpetuate slavery. I love people. My friends are black. But when people see me, all they see is a white female. They see me as a person of privilege. Uh, and I'm not. They don't even know my situation or anything. So how do I enter into a space with any person, not just a black person, mm -hmm. but a person who's lived a different lifestyle? And I, my response to her is always, you enter with your heart. You don't enter with your head. You enter mm -hmm. with your heart because whatever is from the heart, it reaches the heart. And there will always be people, I believe, Alan, that God sends to us who are ready to lean with us and to learn from us as well. It needs to be mutual learning. If we're in a situation where we feel like we're always on the, on the side where we have to learn something, then it might not be the healthiest place, even for leaders. Mm -hmm. Leaders can learn, but they also have something to give as well. Mm -hmm. That's good. I have this question. I ask people, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And I've, I've found out that for me, it's to have a conversation when I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to process even before we hit record on this, we're saying, how are you doing with this? And there's this sadness underneath the surface. Um, the realities of injustice that are wrong. How are you processing this? And when I don't know what to do, uh, and after the murder of George Floyd, then I began to just call friends and say, can we just have a walk and talk? And we just sit down for a meal and I would sit down with my black friends and just say, how are you processing this? What should I not be seeing? And there was this fear that I'm, I'm going to say something mm -hmm. wrong. I'm going to ask the wrong question. Yeah. All them more than gave me the benefit of the doubt and actually shared, here's what I need to get off my chest also. Mm -hmm. And so I was surprised that they needed to talk as much as I did, maybe more in that scenario. So really interesting that I come in shrinking away mm. and thinking they're going to be offended that I want to talk, want to bother them. And I thought, well, if, if they don't want to chat or walk and talk or eat a taco with me, then they'll tell me. And I have found so much healing back in friendship. And that's why mm. I absolutely love that you're talking about friendship. I think we've complicated a lot. And I appreciate mm. the simple message of this book. And one of the things you're talking about is comfort zone. 
we got to address the comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. Is at some point, if we're going to have true friendships, we got to go beyond the comfort zone, right? Yeah, we do. And I'll say this here to be very vulnerable on here and transparent is that for me as a black woman, uh, when the murder of George Floyd um, occurred, I was heartbroken and I watched the funeral and I cried. But we had a recent situation with um, a black guy in Wisconsin who was shot seven times in the back while his three kids watched. That broke me. It just broke me in a different way. And I was asking God, why did it break me so much? And somehow I think, Alan, I just have not wanted to share with people my real uh, pain as a black woman because I do all this, you know, training and talking about unity and and coming together in Ubuntu. And so I'm like, okay, let me be an advocate, make sure that I'm modeling what it means to be an advocate here for this. And then this week when this situation happened, um, it broke me and the father said, it needs to break you because people mm-hmm. still need to see your pain as well. So what's the fear underneath that? Why, why are you struggling to share uh, the pain that you have, the sadness, even the anger you have? What's your fear? Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm not, you know, right now, but I think in the past it was because there was a layer of something in me that said, hey, there's all this stuff going on in the earth and where is biblical justice? Where is racial, right, racial righteousness in the midst of this? Some things I don't like. I see division now with activist groups that are bringing division between whites and blacks. So I'm just trying to be mindful of my voice. However, I do feel that the father said that the pain of injustice that breaks my heart, it should still break your heart as well. Yeah. Yeah. So many different directions we we could go with that. I think the danger is skepticism that eventually leads to cynicism, that our hearts get hard. And so how do you continue to have soft heart to what God's doing when we look at the world is broken. It's not as it should be. We're not in this conversation saying everything's all good, right? Yeah. Of course not. That's right. not what I hear in your book either. But how do you keep your soft, uh, your soft heart toward God and the things that God is doing and still acknowledge the world's broken? That's a great question. So for me personally, I, you know, I go back to the fact that I'm a believer and that I'm a Christian. And what should my response be? How should my life mirror Jesus? life during this time what is incarn the incarnational life of jesus i mean i think about as we read through the gospels all the people who were doing so many things you know in the gospels and jesus yet knew that the answer was a life that is transformed by jesus and so for me the way i keep my heart soft you know i don't i try to always remember that what i see in one situation does not define everybody else who may look like that situation or anything. And so here's a great story. I um, As I was just kind of grieving over this latest shooting of the guy you know, in Wisconsin, I uh, began to spill this thing stirring in my heart, like, okay, policemen, police officers, law enforcement is kind of stirring like, something's wrong with this here, what in the world? And yet I'm a trainer. I'm a cultural You work trainer. with law enforcement on a regular with, basis. I work with law enforcement. And so I felt this thing stirring up in my heart that we sometimes as Christians don't want to say 
this little kind of prejudging bias coming up, not against white people as a mm-hmm. whole, but against systemic things. And as soon as it came up, there were um, two white teenagers in a 7-Eleven and uh, I saw them, they smiled. And by the time I got to the counter, they had paid for my little snacks mm. and juice and they were teenagers. Mm. And this one lady said, I just want to tell you, so beautiful, your heart. We heard mm. you sing in your heart. And mm. immediately, I really believe Jesus allowed a recalibration of my heart. Mm. And and I, I go to the Lord often and I say, mm. Father, I just want to make sure that my life is always mirroring yours. I want to make sure that even when I see pain and injustice, that I don't cause that to take me off course of my mission, yeah. which is to live a life that mirrors you. Mm, that's so good. You talk about three different ways we can respond to injustice, the head, the heart, and the gut. Can you explain those a little bit? Yeah, so I used the analogy from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And, you know, all of them kind of walking down that road, oh, I need a heart, you know, the tin man, I got you know, he was the scarecrow. So everybody needed something, a heart, brain. And yet I used the analogy that each one of them had was someone else. Um, not that they didn't have that, but they were walking with people who could help them because mm. everybody walked with had what they needed. And so I used the analogy that again with our head, if we process things, what we see always according to what's on the, on the news, what's in the media, what are people saying? Here's another book. It's great. All of that. And then it becomes overload. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, I got so much going on in my head. I want to make a difference. I don't know how. I don't know what to do. So that's the headpiece. And then your heart, the heart says, I don't like that. I don't like these groups out here protesting. I don't like what's going on. But my heart says something is wrong. Mm. And I don't know yep. how to change it, but something is wrong. Yep. And then the gut is courage. Mm. So where's my voice in the midst of this? Whatever I see. So it could be anything. In this pandemic, what I've come to realize as a pastor is people are multitasking. I mean, they're multitasking isolation, loss of jobs, their personal stuff. They're cutting on the news. And grieving. And all grieving. That. We've lost stuff in all these Areas, oh. even if it's just predictability of what our yes. life was before, we're multitasking grief. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, multitasking grief and cutting on the news wow. and then seeing big pictures of national grief, community grief, protesting. Some of the places that people love going to have been looted. I'm just being honest. You know, mm-hmm. there's burning and rioting and looting. And people are like, okay, I'm going back to my head because now something is happening. But then the gut is courage. The gut says, okay, Lord, what is my position right now on the earth? What is not my position? And how do I move with courage to be a voice of unity, a reconciliation, and truth? Yeah. Righteousness, Amos 5 and 24, um, let justice and righteousness roll down. Justice needs to roll. But it needs to roll with righteousness. And can you explain that term racial righteousness? You talk a little bit about it in the book, but I thought that was really helpful. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, so racial righteousness is a term that I use that, um, so well, I'll prefix it with this. There's racial reconciliation. People know what that means. How do we reconcile races so that we're unified? Well, the truth is a lot of people don't know what they're reconciling because mm. they're like, I have friends from different cultures. So I don't know what am I trying to reconcile? Sure. I don't see people any differently. Racial righteousness says, okay, how do I walk with people 
in the right manner where um, I suspend my cultural assumptions about people, mm. where I think and live like a missionary in my own backyard, where I allow myself to become a learner, where I lean into the pain of others without necessarily validating everything, but definitely valuing them. We value, we validate the value and worth of people. And so racial righteousness is saying that righteousness is how do we walk in a right manner on this earth? How do we walk in our communities with people who are hurting, with our friends who are hurting, like you said, to be able to listen and to friends and to, and to hear stories where maybe not every black person is feeling the same way, mm -hmm. that they're not all grouped together. So that righteousness piece is seeking the Lord for answers. It's great to become an ally. We use the term of mm -hmm. cultural ally for truth and justice. And with that being said, it still all has to be clothed, I believe, in the righteousness of Jesus. Mm, that's, that's so good. So those three really helped me understand the head, the heart, the gut, the, the courage. At some point, we have to take next steps because it can be paralyzing. Mm -hmm. What can I do? And I've felt that. And the why is you can't do anything. You just have to sit back. Maybe you can send out a tweet. Maybe you could put up something yeah. on Facebook. Um, maybe you can text one friend, but you really can't do anything. What would you say to somebody right now, especially who's white and says, I can't really do anything. I feel so powerless. I feel so helpless. How do I be part of the solution? What would you say? Yeah, several things. Number one is lean into prayer. And I know mm. sometimes we kind of put that at the end. Yeah. But I want to start with that at the beginning. Yeah, that's good. You know, lean into prayer and pray and ask the Lord to bring opportunities for your heart to be connected with places where you really are just feeling this burning passion mm. to make a difference, as yeah. you said. That's number one. And then I believe God will open doors and bring those opportunities. Number two is being very mindful of people that are already around us that, you know, maybe we don't speak to them. I mean, church, we think about church and who's in our churches or who's on the grounds of the church that maybe we should go over and be intentional with mm. and, and strike up a conversation. You know, be surprised just saying, hey, you want to have tea or coffee of uh, the intentionality, forging intentional relationships. And so what I mean by forging is that most things aren't going to happen unless we're intentional about it. Yeah. Period. Period. Life. We're so busy. We're so disconnected. Intentional. You probably say that 15 times in the yeah. book. Intentional, intentional, intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Intentional relationships. Yeah. And also, I just believe practical ways that we all, and, and you say the whites here, we use that, is connect with people who can help you learn and grow, mm. who can become cultural champions for you that you don't have to do something by yourself. And remember that, you know, sometimes when we say things, we mean well, like some of my friends said, well, I'm damn colorblind. You know, I don't see any <laughs> color. And I said, well, that's great. I, I totally get what you're saying. However, you don't have to be colorblind <laughs> to have friends. So like not true and also not helpful. <laughs> and, not, and not helpful. Yeah. And then I believe too as leaders. So when we look at leadership, we, we lead from a place of hope, expectancy, and faith. Mm. And I do believe that we are called during this time as leaders. It doesn't matter whether a leader is white, watching this, Vietnamese, or whatever. 
how do we lead people into truth and righteousness mm -hmm. and not lead them just from our own perspectives, not just lead them to what we see on the nightly news? How are we praying, connecting yeah. with people and leading them into a greater place of helping people to understand that Jesus is the answer for all of this? Hope, faith, expectancy. And to pull this back to the conversation about burnout and conversations about staying healthy, if we don't stay healthy, we get cynical, we get tired, we think there's no way that things can change. And if you are watching this, if you're listening to this, stay healthy, take care of your heart. You know, scripture says above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Mm -hmm. If watching the evening news every night is not exactly the most encouraging thing, yes. you may need to take a break from it. And I've mm -hmm. taken a break from various apps because I thought I just can't do it in this season if I'm going to keep my heart fresh enough to be part of the solution. Do you have hope? Do you have faith that God actually can move in this? Do I have any expectancy that can be different? Um, because if not, we're in a tough spot. I mean, if you're a leader and you are listening to this, you are watching this, check yourself. Like that is a very dangerous place to be when we are so exhausted that we cannot have hope and expectancy. And so I want to make sure that we don't miss that. Guys, you live this out so well. MJ, I'm so glad to be your friend and also to have you really leading the charge, not only for our Stay Forth team, but for churches, organizations around the country. Can you share just a little bit on when, when you talk about diversity and inclusion training and even coaching? What could that look like to an individual or a group when you go out and speak and train teams in this? Let us into a little bit of what that looks like. Yes, so when I do diversity um, or equity and inclusion training, at some point in the 80s, um, any kind of training that had to do with culture was called diversity training. And, and again, you know how terms kind of morph into something mm -hmm. different a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the inclusion training is kind of a little more the popular term now. What I do with any of that training, if I'm going, number one, to places where there are believers or spiritual places or Christian places, I always... A case my training um, in a biblical perspective. And so I have principles that I use um, as far as how to walk through really embracing not just diversity, but the kingdom perspective of biblical diversity. Biblical diversity says everybody matters in the kingdom. It doesn't matter. Uh, in Revelation 79, the whole passage would John say, I saw a multitude of all nation kindred tongues you know, worshiping. And so I bring that back here in a relevant way when I do training. So what does it look like with your teams? What does it look like with your organizations? How are you recruiting? How are you maintaining an atmosphere where everybody feel welcome and embraced? Uh, do people feel like they have to check their identity at the door, like a coat to be a part of your organization? Mm -hmm. Do they come in, but are they really actually able to flavor the organization with their life, with their experiences, with what they bring. I use the analogy of an onion um, and a stew, the metaphor of a big stew pot, and you have an onion and you take the onion and put it in a Ziploc bag, put it inside the stew and say, oh, wow, this onion is really flavoring the stew. Well, it has to really work hard to flavor the stew because it's in a Ziploc bag. So if we unzip that onion, mm -hmm and say it's just as valuable as mm -hmm. every other ingredient, that is what inclusion and diversity training is. It's not saying you have to embrace something that you don't agree with, but you know goes against your values and beliefs. It is about humanity. 
Mm. It is about the value, worth, and dignity of people. And so training is contextualized in any ministry, any setting, but it all is principle-based. It's, it's uh, rooted in, in the Bible. There's, um, again, contextualized training mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, awesome. Well, if this is something um, that your organization is really willing to crack open uh, right now, I would highly encourage you uh, to bring in Melinda Joy. And whether it's in through Zoom, whether it's in in person, whether it's speaking to first and then coaching the leaders, uh, you have background in HR, you've worked in large businesses, corporations, you're now a coach as well, leadership coach, but also I feel like this, this moment, you are really here to shine in so many ways. And I think this book came out at the exact right time. The Colors of Culture, The Beauty of Diverse Friendships. Guys, this book is accessible. You can buy these for people on your team. There's also some incredible action steps in the end of the book, which I'm a big fan of because I want to say, what can I actually do? Like, what are some next steps? And so I just appreciate your posture and your heart in this. We always want to end with this question, a zoom out question. I think about 10 years from now in 2030, we're going to look back at this year. Everyone says unprecedented and crazy are the two words I hear from 2020. What do you want people to say about how you lived and how you led as an agent of the kingdom? through this crazy and unprecedented year of 2020. Wow. I would love for people to say, um, did, have you, if you interacted with Melinda Joy, that she has a heart for all people. She has a heart of justice, but she's not an activist. She's an ambassador. Mm-hmm. She's an ambassador for Jesus, for all people coming to a place of understanding that she, she was instrumental in helping to shape this world in a way where human worth and value and dignity became the forefront of everything rather than anything else. And watching your life, I believe people will say that 10 years from now. Congratulations on your book, The Colors of Culture. And I am so excited for you to continue to shape our team at Stay Forth and teams across the country and how we can better come together under the banner of heaven with brothers and sisters, yes. friends, sons, daughters to say that we serve the one true God and we more faithfully can do that when we are serving together. So thank you for all of your work. Thank you. I appreciate it. So